Good morning. My name is Becky, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Becky. Hi, everybody. We'll open this meeting with a moment of silence and followed by a serenity prayer. Anything, but if I have, I think it'll be okay. I've got the distinct privilege this morning of introducing to you from Louisville, Kentucky. I'm not going to take any of this time, and I give you Gary B. Hello. Again. Uh, I just gapped there a minute ago. Yeah. You know, doing the serenity prayer and the 12 steps, I just kind of closed my eyes. And I went someplace else. And I opened my eyes and I go, what am I doing here? It was kind of nice. I'd like you to take a minute with me, if you wouldn't mind, and just close your eyes for a second. And I'd like you to just become aware of your higher power's presence here. Not just in this room, but inside you. Inside you. Okay. You can open your eyes. Come on back. Just a little gap. <laughs> but I say that, too, to remember a little bit. Um, because uh, do, me, do yourself a favor. If anybody, if you, if you want to say, let's get back to the real world, we're going back to the real world this afternoon, don't say it. This is the real world. And the kingdom of heaven lives inside of you. You take that with you. You don't live it here. This is not my real talk. My real talk is if you were to follow me around for a week get inside my head for a week. See what I do when I become impatient or angry or perfectionistic or fearful or scared or lonely or hungry or whatever it might happen to be. That's my real talk. And my real talk is probably just as good as this one, although it's probably not as dramatic. And it's probably not as nice, and it's probably not as pretty, but it's real. And I think that's one of the reasons why we come here. We come here to get real. Because I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that felt like. I was reading a bedtime story to my granddaughter, one of our granddaughters, a couple of months ago. I love kids' books. They have marvelous wisdom in them. They do. They just, they're just, they're full of, you know, and, and if we could just remember the things we remembered when we were a kid, um, I'd probably be sober a lot longer than I was. The book was Winnie the Pooh, and it starts off by saying on page one, I couldn't believe this, on page one of this wonderful, wonderful book, it says, here comes Edward Bear down the steps, bump, 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 on the back of his head. He thinks that there must be another way to come down the stairs if he could just stop thumping long enough to figure out what it is. That sounds familiar. Are there any thumpers out there? If I could just stop long enough to figure out what it is. God, that was, that was the story of my life. Because I knew there was another way of doing this. I knew there was another way. I didn't know what it was. 
And I was probably too drunk or too stoned or too whatever to figure out what it was. But, I, but when in those, in those moments of lucidity, in those, in those kind of waking moments where, where I wasn't, where I was a little bit more honest, I said, there must be another way of doing this. This can't be it. You know, that real talk I mentioned, I, I think it's kind of like, um, recovery is sort of like getting into an intimate relationship with somebody. Now, I know there's lots of neat things about falling in love and stuff like that, um, which we've all done probably more often than we need to. Um, I remember Scott Peck called falling in love a, a mild form of insanity. Uh, and, and in truth, it is. Um, but I'm, I'm talking about really, real relationship kind of when you make a committed relationship to another human being. And you know what happens then? There, there really is a magical thing that happens, but it's not what you expect. Because when you get into a committed relationship with another human being, all of your stuff comes right up in your face. Everything you avoided all of your life, everything you didn't even know you were avoiding all of your life, comes right in your face. And the first thing we want to do is blame the other person. Say, I was fine until you came along. <laughs> and that's not it. But you know what happens when we get sober and we, we get through that falling in love period, or I got through that falling in love, what we used to call a pink, I haven't heard people talk about pink clouds lately. I'm sure they haven't disappeared. I'm sure people still have them once in a while. And that, that falling in love, that honeymoon period where everything is, not only is better than what it was, because it is certainly, but it feels better than what it was, and I feel like I've, I've got it. Some kind of feeling I had when I first drank. I got it. This is it. This is all I have to do. When I, when I, was, when I was growing up, you know, a lot of people put words on this. The word that I come up with, I was lost. I was just friggin' lost. I, I was like I was, I was I, somebody, somebody planted me in this video game and nobody told me the rules. And everybody, everybody else seemed to know what they were. And they were doing whatever they needed to do, and they were, they were doing it well, it seemed to me. And, and I was going, what do I do? How do I do this? And of course, all the people in my life who were telling me the rules, they didn't know what they were either. And I knew that. I knew my father didn't know the rules. I knew my mother didn't know the rules. I knew, I, I knew the priest in church didn't know the rules. I knew everybody else, or most of the other people, at least in my life, they were as lost as I was. And the only thing I could figure out to do was to pretend. That's what I figured life was all about. Life was a big game of let's pretend. If, if you get to, I, I even thought this when I was about seven years old. I was waiting for my funeral. I planned my funeral when I was seven. I grew up, I'm, obviously I'm not from around here. I, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And, uh, yeah, anybody, any Brooklynites? <laughs> Misplaced New Yorkers? That's okay. I'm home anyway. That's the nice part about this disease. You're home any place you are when you're aware. Anyway, I remember looking at funerals in, in, in my church. Our church was right across the street from me in Brooklyn. And um, I don't know whether they, still, whether they do this here or not, uh, but uh, in Brooklyn, they used to be able to measure the importance of the individual by the number of flower cars that were following the hearse. 
And so, you know, living in Brooklyn in an Irish-Italian ghetto, uh, you know, we had a few mafiosos, and they, they had really big, lots of flower cars. And I used to dream about that. I used to dream, seven years old, I used to dream about, how many flower cars am I going to have? That's not healthy. That's not really good. But I was lost. And the only way I knew out of this game that I didn't know the rules for was dying. Because all the rest of it was just faking it. It was just doing what I thought either somebody else wanted to do or figuring out what, what looked good. And, and I would do that. And I just got more lost and more lost and more lost. And I had a lot of things in the recipe. I had sense of humor. I had um, energy. I had, I had uh, life. I had creativity. And, and that was my, kind of my recipe for life. I would mix in all of these, all of these qualities that I could find up about myself. And there was always something missing until I drank. And it was like that was, that was, the, mag that was the glue that held all of that stuff together. And, and I really decided, I said, ah, that's it. Kind of like you might have said, if, if, if we could only just live here all the time. Well, that's not it, sorry. This isn't the magic ingredient. The magic ingredient is right in here. You've got to take it with you. But I thought the magic ingredient was there, and, and, and the, mix, the mix worked. For, of course, it worked for you for a while, too. All right? It was only when it stopped working that it ran into problems. Or when I realized it stopped working. It stopped working a long time before I realized it stopped working. <laughs> Did it do that for you? And, and it, the reality is that when I got sober, or I got, in, I got dry first, reality hit me right in the face. All of the stuff that I had been avoiding, all of the stuff that I had been trying to get away from, all of the stuff that I had been trying to, to say, not me too, right up in my face. And you know what? It's still there. When I reach a certain level of enlightenment, which I haven't gotten to yet, then maybe I will get to that point where it's not there anymore, but it's still there. And, and maybe it's going to be there, as, as somebody suggested the other night, it's going to be there all my life. And you know what? I've got I to learn how to live with it and deal with it and do with it. I used to be a school teacher a couple lifetimes ago. Does ever feel like that? I'm not sure about reincarnation or not. Sometimes it really scares me if it's true. Because, God, I don't want to go through my adolescence again. Because I went through it at least two or three times already, and it, was, it didn't get any better. But every once in a while, I will look at my life, and I, I will look back, and I will go, Who was that? I even had that experience. I sent a tape to, uh, to Brenda, um, which was a tape I did at a conference a number of years ago, and I, I just didn't have any other, other tapes of talks that I had done, uh, at least straight AA talks. And I sent it to and I listened to it after I sent it to her, and I go, who is that guy? <laughs> I mean, I recognized him sort of. You know, he looked familiar, he sounded familiar, but it wasn't me today. And, I, you know, I was certainly glad of that. It wasn't me. But there were so many things that had changed not only externally in my life, but internally. And so, you know, I, I think maybe it, is, maybe it is true somehow that we, we, we go through a progression of, of lifetimes or, or changes. That, and that, to me, that, that's fine. That's kind of far out, though, to listen to yourself or to see a video or a movie of yourself, you know, 10 years ago and go, hmm, interesting. <laughs>
Well, in one of my other lifetimes as a school teacher, um, which I, I, I drank a lot of that time, I, I, and I, I am very saddened by that because I, I didn't give a lot of people the time or the attention that they paid for or deserved. And there even might be some of my former students out there. Um, and if I need to make amends to you, tell me. Let me know. I will do whatever I can. One day, I walked in when I was drinking. And um, we had to wear sh ties and jackets and stuff. We, it, was real, it, was a, it was a Catholic private school. And um, I had this tie... I'm sure a lot of you had one of these, too, that if you had to wear a tie, that was about three years old, and it only had been knotted once. And there were kind of grease stains right around here, right around the part where the knot is. And, and I, I, so I had one of those on, which was, was pretty much my standard fare and, and um, whatever other clothes I could find to put on that particular day. And I walked in, and I had a really nice schedule because I, I had the first period off. And so I could go and hide and, and put my head in a newspaper and maybe have, have a cup of coffee and get my stuff together. And, of course, make to myself all of those promises. I'm not going to do this again. Tomorrow, today, today is going to be different, actually. Tomorrow is really going to be different. Tomorrow is going to be great and better. But today is really going to be different because, because I'm not going to do what I did last night. And so I'd make all those promises in my home. Well, I came walking in looking forward to having that hour where I could stick my head in a newspaper and have that cup of coffee. And, and um, as soon as I walked in, the assistant principal handed me a pink slip. And that didn't mean I was fired. But what it did mean is what I, I, had, a, I, had, a, I had a class substitution that my free period was taken up by, uh, by someone. And I looked at it, and it was freshman English. I said, uh, I was a biology teacher. I said, oh, this is the pits. Freshman English. So I, anyway, I, I, I figured out something in my head. I put on my sternest face and I walked in with my greasy tie. And I looked at them and I pounded my books on the desk. And freshmen are very easily t intimidated because I didn't know what's going on anyway. And it was, it was very good because I didn't know what was going on either. And, uh, you know, I slammed my books on the desk and I looked at them and I said, okay. I said, for this period, I said, this is an English class, right? And they walked, yes, yes. And I said, okay, for this period, I want you to write a novel. Now, a novel has four basic elements to it. It has religion, royalty, sex, and mystery. Now, I want to make sure you have all four of those elements or else your novel is not acceptable. So they kind of looked at one another and went, a novel, that's cool. Got out their paper and pens and started writing. And I sort of put my head down on the desk trying to make promises to myself of how today and tomorrow we're going to be different. And, um, about five minutes into the class, this kid raises his hand. I go, what? And he goes, I said, do you have a question? He said, no. He said, I'm finished. I said, you finished your novel? He said, yes. And I said, well, does it have, you know, religion, royalty, sex, and mystery? He said, yes. I said, come here. Give me that paper. Here's what he said. Holy Moses, said the princess, pregnant again. I wonder who did it. <laughs> that both shot and made my whole morning. But it's, all, it's also stayed with me for so long that it be, it's become part of, my, part of my story. 
as I was going over this, I, I, I've been doing a, a study of comparative religions, or really comparative spirituality. And, and of course, what I find out is the big book is one of the most marvelous books of comparative spirituality that you're ever going to find. Also comparative psychology and probably comparative anything else. And if you drop the word alcohol from a lot of the sentences that might be in that book, you could probably hand that to anybody who's looking for a way of changing their lives. Even what we're calling earth people. And by the way, I don't believe, I don't believe there are any earth people left anymore. Uh, because everybody's addicted to something and everybody's... Uh, ours was just a lot more visible. It's kind of like you don't know when an Al-Anon has a slip. Because you can't smell it on her breath, okay? <laughs> but you do know when an alcoholic does. Well, maybe you do know what Alan does too, right? <laughs> you know, in different ways. And you know, so I, you know, our I, reason why I'm, I'm so grateful is that our illness is so visible, and and that what happens when it is really visible is is either people do things to you that forces you to do something about yourself. And if it wasn't so visible, if it wasn't so hidden, you might have to sneak around to a therapist's office and say, "I think there's something wrong with me." And if you have a really good one, you probably say, no, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just, you're just struggling with your human nature, right? You're trying to put things together and you're just stuck on something. Anyway, one of the things I came across, which was really delightful, and I'd just like to share this with you, because this is, this is really my real talk in a nutshell. This comes from Taoism, the, uh, one of the Oriental philosophies. It says very simply, those who know don't say. Those who say don't know. Now you can go home now. Because that's basically it. Because the truth of the matter is that I firmly, firmly believe that all of the stuff that comes to you and me from the outside somehow has to resonate within our hearts to be the truth. Now it might take a hammer and a chisel to get in there. And it might take years for it to get in there. But the only truth the only spirituality, the only place really where we find who and what we are looking for is right here. No place else. Now there are some people who can touch that for us, who kind of can unlock it for us. I've got three little granddaughters who do that. God, I am so blessed. All I have to do is think about them or look at one of their pictures. And I have no doubt in my mind that I am living in a loving universe. I have no doubt in my mind that the infinite source of love lives inside of them. And if the in infinite source of love lives inside of them, then who the hell am I to deny the fact that it lives inside of me? Or you. Or the person who cuts me off in traffic. Or the one with 17 items in her grocery cart. Or the one who's writing a check when she should have had it filled out earlier. For him, I did things a little bit differently than a lot of people did, and I mean, my story turned out the same. I just did things in a little bit of a different order. I had my first drink the day I was born. I got my driver's license, got married after I got sober, which I'm glad. I'm glad of all three of those things. Um, I was a preemie. I, I was born two, three months, two months premature, in a um, long time ago. Um, <laughs> in 1943, if you really want to know. And um, at that particular time, they didn't do a very good job with preemies. They, they, they really didn't know what to do. And, and um, sometimes the oxygen mix would be a little bit too high and babies would go blind because their optic nerve would, would burn out. Um, 
and they also didn't know too much about alcohol and stuff like that. Um, but because alcohol or whiskey was thought to be good for the, the heart. It's an old Irish expression. It's good for me, heart. Right? It's not good for mine, but it's good for yours, me. You know, well, I thought it'd be good for me, heart. So the first thing they gave me was a shot of whiskey and saline solution. It's in my little baby's book. Baby's first meal. Okay? Whiskey and before mother's milk. Whiskey and saline solution. They gave me a drink and threw me in an incubator. As I like to say, I've been crying for it ever since. All right? <laughs> and uh, fortunately, things have changed somewhat. But that, that, was, that was part of the story. And I didn't, really, I didn't know that. I didn't find that out until after I'd gotten sober and I picked up this book. Because I, I, at that particular time, I was interested in my history. When I was drinking, I didn't care about my history. It didn't matter where I was. didn't matter where I was going. All I wanted to do was not feel now. And so when I, when I looked it up, I said, wow, isn't that amazing? I don't think that has anything to do with anything, but it's kind of a neat little story anyway. I was looking for my recipe, like I told you, and, and I was looking all over the place, and I couldn't find it from the people who knew me or the people who saw me, but I, I, I listened to people. I listened to people at church, and I listened to people at home, and, and I, I learned something from my religion See, I always had a sense, or I won't say always, but ever since I can remember, I had a sense of spirituality. I really did. I, I feel very blessed by that. I lost it, or I lost touch with it, but I really had that. I really had a sense that all of this stuff that we call religion was just trappings. They were just kind of wall decorations for a certain way of doing something, and it wasn't the reality of things. And, and so I, I kind of knew that in my heart, but it, it was really, really difficult to touch sometimes, to really get in touch with. And, and I learned about my soul. I learned that I had a soul, which was really kind of nice. My soul was made in the image and likeness of God. Any, more, any Baltimore catechism people out there? And, and my, my soul was in the image and likeness of God, okay? And, um, and it would live forever. I said, wow, that's great. But you know... Nobody ever told me what it did. And so I got the impression it didn't do anything. It just sort of sat there waiting for the rest of me to screw up. Like my body. Feed me. You know, my mouth or my genitals or some other part of me to mess up. Or my head to mess up or the rest of me. My soul didn't do anything. It just sort of sat there and waited either for its eternal reward or eternal punishment. And, of course, I knew which was coming, all right? By the time I was six or seven, all right, I wasn't going to get through this thing. My soul didn't do anything. It was the rest of me that did all of this stuff, that got me in trouble, that messed me up, that changed my life. And I was saying, please, isn't there a part of me that can do something different? See, I didn't know. Nobody told me. Everybody else was just as lost as I was. I learned later on that my soul... This spiritual part of my nature is an extremely powerful part of me, even though I lose touch with it once in a while, because my ego wants to take over. And I can get into a whole harangue about my ego, but that's, that's all right. I just don't think my ego is a terribly bad thing. It's just terribly immature. It's about three years old. And it does what a three-year-old wants to do. It wants what it wants and it wants and it runs right now and screams and hollers and yells and, and does guilt and fear and, and all kinds of other stuff. If you've ever raised a three-year-old, you know exactly what that is. And so, you know, that's part of, your, that's part of my life. I'm living with a three-year-old. That sometimes is okay and sometimes not. And that, that's, that's just the way it is. It's not bad. 
I don't get mad at a three-year-old for doing what a three-year-old does, or at least I hope I don't. Three-year-old is just doing what a three-year-old does. That's my ego. Ah, oh, that's my three-year-old. Okay, cool. Is there another part of me that I can listen to? I had a great lesson of, of, of being able to change that around a little bit. Somebody, somebody said, somebody said a great question to ask your ego when it's telling you what's, com what's coming next. See, your ego likes to tell you what the next right thing is and what's the next right thing and the next right thing and the next right thing. Is you, you just simply step back for a minute and you say to your ego, when was the last time you predicted the future with any accuracy? And you know what's wonderful about that? Not only does it stop your ego dead in its tracks, but you also say, well, who asked that question? And you know what? There was part of me that did that. Part of me, hopefully, that's a little bit wiser and a little bit better. I got the top of my drinking career. I don't know why we call it a drinking career, but anyway, my mind was very successful. All right? uh, because it got me here. And, and I'm not exactly sure why we call it that, but, but it was. It was very successful. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. It got me here. Uh, it was perfect. It was perfect. You know, remember I told you about being lost. Well, I, I got lost, but I got better at hiding being lost. I got to be a really, really good actor. And so people really believed, I was really fulfilling my dream at seven years old, that people really would, would believe that I, I, was, I got my stuff together. And, and for every year that I made it through that, I, you know, I kind of added another flower car to the procession. Until I got to a point where everything I ever wanted was all together for me. I just got a master's degree in biology with straight A's. I was in charge of a, uh, working with an ecumenical singing group of about 120 kids. We just finished an a, a all-expense-paid tour of Canada, and we just finished our third record album. Um, I was in charge of a four-year retreat program at school. I had my own office, my own telephone line. I had my own telephone line and office at home. People were calling me day and night for advice. You know, and I could just see myself sort of like with this pump, pumping up my ego like this, and it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and I was, and I was, I was holding on to because I thought that was all I had. I was kind of holding on to this, this helium-filled balloon for dear life because I said, my God, if this thing ever blows or if I ever let go, there's not going to be anything left. I'm just going to be this amoeba on the floor. I'm going to be this puddle. There's not going to be anything left of me. So I'm holding on to this thing for dear life, and I'm pumping like hell because um, you have to. Yesterday's rewards are never good enough. Today's got, I've, I've got to put more into it today. And so I'm pumping like crazy, and this thing is getting bigger and bigger, and I'm holding on, I'm holding on, I'm holding on, until one day I had sort of a little, I call it a little, a little mountaintop experience where I looked at my life and I said, Jerry, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this, you had this, you had this, you had this, you had this. Now what? And I looked inside, and all I could see was empty. I was dead. That's a part of my life I never want to forget, but I don't want to live there either. It's kind of like the promise tells me. We will not regret the past, no wish to shut the door on it. It's a marvelous teacher. And I, like so many other people who talked about this, had an intervention pulled on them. Mine was Sunday morning coming down. Remember that old Christopherson song? Um, I, I, I just love that. I sing that sometimes in public because it, it means so much to me. You know, about uh, the beer I had for breakfast wasn't bad, so I had one more for dessert. 
And then I fumbled through my closet for my clothes and found my cleanest dirty shirt. Shaved my face and combed my hair and stumbled down the stairs to meet the day. God, remember what that felt like? You know, we have a six, I had a sixth sense, and I know all of us do, when it's just about when it's ready to hit the fan. You know, when it's just about all over, and I knew, man, it's just about, this is my, it's just about, it was Sunday morning, and I didn't have any, I, my, my bottle of old granddad was empty, my Valium bottle was empty, my codeine with turpentine bottle was empty, no spares in the closet. And I go, what am I going to do? They're all downstairs. I was living with four other guys at the time, and I knew they were going to do something. I didn't, I, word intervention didn't enter my mind, but something bad, something terrible was going to happen. I knew it. What am I going to do? And I looked around, and I opened the drawers, and I, I finally found two contacts, um, you know, for colds, and I took them. Um, I mean, I didn't have anything else to take. You know what that's like. I, took, I said, maybe this will do something. Well, yeah, it dried me all up. And his, uh, one of my sponsors said this. He said he took one and he, he, um, he went to urinate one time and all that came out was blue smoke. All right? Well, I, I don't think I even had blue smoke in me at that time. I just got dried out. And, and, and I sat downstairs and these guys told me the truth. And I listened and I listened and I listened. I said, what am I going to do? And I didn't know. They said I could go to A, they said I'd go to a shrink, I could do this. And, and I, I had some time to make up my mind, I didn't know. And so I, 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 I remember two, 2 or 3 o'clock that Sunday, it was actually Monday morning, I went downstairs where the, where the whiskey was and the beer was, and I, I pulled a can of beer out of the, clo- out of the, out of the refrigerator, and I had a um, uh, church key. This was before pull tops. Right? Did you ever try and open a can of beer in a quiet house where five other people are sleeping, all right, quietly. I put towels over it, and it still sounded like a hydrogen bomb going off. And I started drinking it, and then I had a shot of whiskey, and I poured the beer, rest of the beer down the sink, and I went to bed. And I did the same thing the next night. Well, I had the first drink on the day I was born. That was the last drink I've had up until today. Didn't do much for me, but it was kind of like taking those contacts. I knew I had to do something. And I remember I, I, was, I was just futzing around. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't connected with AA or not yet. And, and my, one of the guys I was living with, Louis, he was about six foot five. And of course, I'm about five foot nothing. And, and Louis came up to him, came up to me, and he looked at me like this. And he said, he said, how are you doing? And I, I gave my standard answer. I said, I'm okay. I'll give you one of my moments. This was one of my moments. He said, I don't think you know what okay feels like. God, what a fantastic thing to say to me. I don't think you know what okay feels like. And it went, it went right into my, it was like an arrow. It went right into my heart. I said, oh, crap. Totally unmasked. Totally naked. I don't know what okay feels like. I didn't. I was reminded of a song that I had heard around that time by Jackson Brown called Your Bright Baby Blues. It said, I've been up and down this highway far as my eyes can see. No matter how fast I run, I can never get away from me. No matter how hard I try, I'm always a day away from where I want to be. 
Well, I got sober, thank God, with the help of a lot of people in AA and sponsor that I dearly, dearly loved, who has since passed over to the other side, who I will never, ever, ever, or I hope I never, ever, ever forget. And you know, that's when you're learning, that's when my learning really started. That's when all my stuff came up in my face and said, okay, time to go to school. See, I always, I always thought God made a great big error with me. I thought I should have been born on a mountaintop in Tibet. Um, I, I should have been born some kind of enlightened being that, some, that God made a grave error by putting me in this alcoholic Irish Catholic family in Brooklyn and, and uh, who's making mistakes all the way along my life. Um, but that was the biggest one where he put me. And I thought either I should be one of these enlightened beings here on planet Earth or I should be on some other plane. I mean, I am much more spiritually advanced than, than what's going on here. So I belong someplace else. And it finally dawned on me after I had started getting sober what one of my teachers told me, Jerry, he said, life is a classroom. Why don't you start taking the curriculum? I said, oh, I never thought about that. I was always trying to avoid it. When all my stuff's in my face, guess what? It's life 101 or 201 or 301. And 101 looks a lot like 201, looks a lot like 301, looks a lot like 401, looks a lot like 501. They got different names and hopefully different advancements. Um, but they're, they're a lot of the same kind of things that I need to learn. One of my most wonderful teachers in my life is, is, is one of my granddaughters. I'm sure the other ones will teach me more later. Well, I had the privilege of watching and watching Michaela learn how to walk. See, something you don't, something a couple of people know about me. I'll just say this real quick. It's part of my history that's somewhat irrelevant. But I was a monk for 27 years. That's where I developed my alcoholism. And so I, I had, I had a very different view of the outside world. And I certainly wasn't married at that particular time. I didn't have any kids. And so I, I am so eternally blessed right now that I, when when Margot and I got married, she had two grown children, and they didn't have any kids yet. And Roger was married, her son was married, and practically right after we got married, or fairly soon after we got married, they started having kids. I became a grandpa. And it's the most marvelous thing in the world. And so I had a chance to watch this little person learn how to walk, fall down and, and, and get up. And, 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 you know, nobody ever told her she couldn't do that. Nobody said, okay, you can't walk. You know, you just fell down 575 times. You can't walk now. Didn't matter. And it wasn't gritting your teeth kind of determination. It was just very gentle determination that I can do this and I am going to do this. And that there are so many things connected with that. But what a, what a marvelous, marvelous little teacher she was for me. And the biggest thing she teached me is, is what, what somebody else told me one time. She said, you know, when you're doing something new, you know what? You've got to go through awkward I always wanted to go from apprenticeship to mastery, like that. No awkward for me. Awkward doesn't look cool. Awkward looks bad. Awkward's not nice. Awkward not... There must be something wrong with you if you're awkward. And the fact of the matter is you're not. You're just going through awkward. And when, I, when I'm, I'm learning, I'm still learning, I'll probably learn the rest of it, but when I can embrace myself for going through awkward... Isn't that wonderful? Just to give myself permission to, to trip and fall and stumble and, and fall on my butt and do whatever and make mistakes. Oh my God. 
to do what I need to do to be able to grow? One of the neatest things about growing in sobriety is that there are points in my life where I can kind of look back when I, when I, I actually recognize where I'm doing something differently. Did you ever, that ever happen to you? You say, oh my God, I would have done that, I would have done that differently a couple of years ago, but I'm doing it well now. I'm doing it much nicer. Somebody reminded me of this in the talk the other night, and it was, it's a little phrase that came from a movie, and I'd like you just to listen to this for a minute, and maybe you can join me on this. It was a rather, it wasn't a very good movie, it was, it was uh, Bill Murray in a movie called Meatballs. But there, were, there, was, there was a really wonderful, poignant scene in that, where he gets up and he does sort of this big preacher kind of like harangue to his camp students, who are losing the, the Olympics to this very rich camp on the other side of the lake. And what he tells them, at the, as he comes to the end of his harangue, he said, and he gets real quiet like a preacher would, he says, and you know what? It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And he starts pounding on the podium a little bit. And, and the kids in, 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 in the camp start picking this up. And they say, start saying, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Could, would you join me for a moment? It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't louder. It just doesn't matter. 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 Does it? No. You'll have something else tomorrow or an hour from now. One of, one of the things, I, this has been happening to me recently, I will come to a moment of peace in my life. I'll come to a gap that it wasn't even conscious on my part. And I'll go, oops. Now what was I worried about? And sometimes I can't remember. But it was so big when I had it. What was I, I couldn't remember. But I'll, I'll go, oh yeah, that's what it was. Okay, yeah, that really is big. It just doesn't matter. One of my favorite teachers in life is my wife, Margot, who um, teaches me another way of looking at the world. We were on a trip. This is just an example. We were on a trip a, a couple of months ago, and I got a cup of cappuccino. I'm not much of a coffee drinker, but when I drive on the road, and I've started getting hooked on this stuff. I think I'm hooked on more of the sugar than I am the, uh, the caffeine. But anyway, I started getting hooked on this stuff, so I bought myself a cup, and I stuck it on top of the car, and I was, I was going to be, I, I bent over to pick something up, and of course the wind blew it off, and, and it got on my back. <laughs> Sticky, you know, coffee. <clears throat> and so the first thing I say to myself, I start cussing myself out and cussing the wind, of course, and cussing God and, and the whole universe for why did you do this to me? And then I start projecting the next three hours of my life about how I'm going to have to sit in the car with this, with this sticky, rotten, lousy shirt. And not only projecting how uncomfortable that, but, but how uncomfortable my head's going to be with all this. And Margot looks at me and says, why don't you change your shirt? <laughs> I went, where did you come from? <laughs> I didn't think of that. I was, I was so locked in to this, this moment of, of being miserable or being angry with myself or being whatever, that I didn't see there were any number. I had a suitcase in the trunk. <laughs> that there were any number of other possibilities that I could do here. I'll give you something, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you something you can do for yourself to change your life. This, this is sort of a, this is a, an indirect piece of wisdom from the big book. Whenever you feel yourself stuck, 
or are trying to get through something, ask yourself this question. How can I do this differently? Guaranteed change your life. How can I do this differently? One other one, if you want to add, if you want to make, you know, and I know, you, I know one question is never going to be enough, even though it's, it's a simple solution to a problem. So I'll give you another one if you want to complicate it a little bit. The other one is, what is my lesson here? What am I supposed to learn from this? How can I do this differently? What am I supposed to learn from this? Or another way of con getting with your ego is do the Taco Bell commercial. You know, with the little chihuahuas calling up the, the president and going, put cheese on the chalupa. Or else. And the guy says, or else what? And he goes, huh, I'll call you back later. <laughs> Try that sometime when your ego says, if you don't do this, something terrible is going to happen. Or kind of the or else. You say, or else what? And they go, oops. Because it doesn't know. Doesn't have a clue. Or else what? There's a wonderful story in the Old Testament where Jacob meets a man on the road. Actually, it was an angel. And for some reason, I, I never have been able to really dissect this too well, but they get into a wrestling match. All right? And they, they're really, I mean, the angel is really knocking a heck out of Jacob. All right? So much so that he knocks his hip out of place and he got, Jacob walks with a limp the rest of his life. But Jacob's holding on for dear life and he says something absolutely marvelous. This, is, this tells me that you know, what I call my character defects are really my best teachers. They really are. They're, they're not anything wrong with me the wrong direction sometimes, but they are my best teachers. <clears throat> now, what, what Jacob said to the angel, he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go until you bless me. And you know, you might wonder why a character defect hangs around. It's because you haven't let it bless you yet. You haven't let it teach you yet. You've been trying to, I'll, I'll do 99% of the work, but the, man, that other 1% is a killer. Because <laughs> that's really in my face and I'm really going to have to embrace this one. So get out of here. He says, no, I will not let you go until you bless me. I quit smoking a while ago. Anybody here ever quit smoking? I know there's a lot of people on this side who quit smoking, too. And I, I'm, not, I'm not drawing sides here. I'm just saying, this is, this is to, me, to me, quitting smoking was, was another, kind of another microcosm in my life. When I, see, I, I used to give lectures, I still do sometimes, but I used to give lectures about alcoholism. When I was still a monk, I used to call myself the poor man's Father Martin, right? <laughs> Which was, a, I mean, a grand ego trip on my part, but I did it anyway. And, and uh, so, you know, I used to give lectures about the, you know, the physical, mental, emotional, spiritual part of, of alcoholism. Everybody go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, everybody was, was recovering at that particular time, so we knew all that. But, you know, it never dawned on me that physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual also had to do with getting well. It wasn't just part of my disease. It was part of my recovery. And so, you know, there have been things that come up in my life, and this was one of them. And I remember sitting, meditating. I was gapping one day, or attempting to. Most of my meditation, by the way, is more attempting to gap than it is gapping. But I was, I was attempting to gap one day, and my lungs felt like they had these lead weights attached to them. They were just, they were sucking me under. I said, i got to quit. I mean, I was in pretty good shape, physically. I thought I was. But see, I was eating all kinds of trash, and I was smoking... But I was exercising a lot. 
I was pretty bulimic, really, is what I was. Or I, because you know, at at the end of a day, I wouldn't eat anything during a day. My my breakfast and lunch usually and snacks in between consisted of coffee and cigarettes. Your dinner for me would be uh, two quarter pounds with cheese, large order of fries, and a large chocolate shake. All right. After I would exercise, of course, because I had to be healthy. All right. And then I would eat all that stuff, and I would sit in front of the television like. Like I just had a couple of Valium, all right, because I couldn't move. And I said, well, maybe something's got to give here. And so I decided to make some. I decided to work on making some changes. Well, one of my one of my uh, um, sponsors told me how to quit smoking, and he gave me this thing about eating all kinds of fruits and vegetables and drinking all kind of water and rubbing yourself down with this loofah sponge. And and I did that for a couple of weeks, and I actually quit for a while. It was wonderful, and I really was quit. I thought I was. And then one day I was sitting at home, and something happened to me. It was like this radio message came into my head, and it said smoke. <laughs> and I really, fe I felt like somebody was working this this remote control device, because I I got up out of my chair and I said I don't want to do this, I don't want. And I got up out of my chair and I and I walked out. I picked up my keys and I walked out the door. I said I don't want to do this. And I walked into the Seven Eleven across the street and I, I I don't want to do this. And I got a pack of cigarettes. And I brought them home. I don't want to do this. Well, I could go into that story. That has a lot of other funny ramifications. But the, the, the fact of the matter is that what occurred to me was, first of all, thank God, it was smoking and not drinking. Because I think I'd be dead today. I just, I felt I had absolutely no control. None. Thank God. One of my struggles right now is, is uh, I'm struggling with a lot of what I call darkness inside. Um, there are some days and weeks where I feel totally lost again and isolated. And it doesn't have anything to do with external events, it just has to do with some stuff that's going on inside me. And, and I, I told my wife, I said, I know why people take their lives if they feel this way. I do. But, for, but I also know that even in the midst of that, that total and complete darkness, that there is a choice I can make. And that choice sometimes is to put one foot in front of the other. And the choice is sometimes to pick up a telephone. Or the choice is sometimes to pick up a book. Or the choice is sometimes to pray or to meditate. There are choices there that, I, that, that don't seem to be there, but they are there. That's the wonderful thing. They don't seem to be there, but they are there. And to me, that's absolutely wonderful. A couple of years ago, I um, had to go to a funeral. Um... I had just buried my father, who died of alcoholism. And a couple of days before this funeral, I had just talked to my mother on the telephone, who was finally free of the two alcoholics in her life. One was dead and one was sober. She had just bought a new apartment in Brooklyn, which is about two blocks away from her sister, and just fixed it up. And I was so happy for her. It was the first time in her life when she would be really free. My aunt called me up on the telephone about 11 o'clock at night. She never calls me up at 11 o'clock at night. I said, your mother just died. I was in shock. Went to Brooklyn. Helped make the arrangements. And then I walked outside that funeral home. It was in March. I don't know if you've ever, probably none of you have ever been to Brooklyn, but 
There's nothing grayer than a gray day in March in Brooklyn, New York. The air's gray, streets gray, sidewalks gray, the buildings gray, people are gray, skies gray. And I walked outside into this gray thing, and, and whether I did this literally or not, I'm not sure. I looked up to heaven and I said, God, why did you do this to me? Why did you make me hurt so? And it was one of those wonderful prayers where an answer came back like that. You know, not the heavens didn't open up, but it was inside me. And the voice said this, Jerry, you hurt because you chose to love. You hurt because you chose to love. Blew me away. Didn't take the hurt away. But all of a sudden I realized nobody was doing anything to me that my hurt or my pain or whatever I was going through was the result of having an open heart with another human being and thank God for that. I wouldn't trade one for the other anytime. You hurt because you chose to love. It's marvelous. I went to treatment for one of my other isms a while ago. Um, and um, they, they, did a, they did what they call a family sculpture. And I was an only child, so they, you know, I had somebody playing my mother and my father, and they were fighting with one another. And, and I was standing there, you know, being pulled one way by my father and one way by my mother, and, and all kinds of. And I was, I was uh, feeling all of this stuff. And then they, one of the counselors said, where do, you, where do you go when this goes on in your family? And I said, I, I went over to a corner. And they piled all sorts of pillows on top of me. And I was in the dark, and I was in a fetal position. I was curled up in the corner, and it felt very, very safe there. It didn't feel good, but it felt safe. And then one of the counselors said, do you want to get out of there? I said, yeah. He said, what are you going to do? So I did my incredible Hulk act. I, I went, -da. I knocked the pillows away. And they said, no, you can't do it that way. Well, of course, I was regressed. I was five years old, so you know, I, I obeyed orders. I said, well, I guess I can't do it that way. So they piled the pillows all around me. And I couldn't think of what to do. I was frozen. I was five. I was still lost. And one of the, one of the counselors said, what's the first word of the first step? And I said, we. And she said, now what are you going to do? And I stuck my hand out from that cave of pillows that I was stuck into. And I said, Marie, will you help me? And somebody grabbed my hand and pulled me out. It's the first word of the first step. Father Leo said we've only just begun. I'd like to suggest that these are the good old days. That this is where it's at. This is it. This is where it happens. This is what's supposed to happen. This is where it does happen. This is the best thing that can happen. And you know, wishes and dreams can come true, even little ones. I told you about singing Sunday morning coming down. I sang that on Pearl Street in Boulder, Colorado this summer with a hat in front of me. I made about 30 bucks. That was a dream I had. I am not much of a singer or much of a player, but I love it. I was born in the 40s, grew up in the 50s, but I'm always going to be a child of the 60s, all right? 
And, and I, I wanted to do that ever since I saw Pearl Street in Boulder. I saw these people coming out and these street musicians and they're doing their thing. And I, I remember saying to Margo, I said, God, I wish I could do that. She said, why can't you? I said, I'm not good enough. Well, how, when would you be good enough? I said, well, that was like the Taco Bell commercial. When are you going to be good? I said, I don't know. Well, anyway, what I did was I took guitar lessons and I took voice lessons. I didn't even get good enough, but I got good enough. And I did it. And it was absolutely marvelous. I don't think, and I know Margot knows me very, very well, I, I, I don't think that she had probably ever seen me that happy. Free. Just doing my thing. Didn't have anything to do with making money. But hey, if you happen to be on Pearl Street in Boulder, and you see me on the corner, especially if I'm singing Sunday morning coming down, say hi, put a quarter in my hat. I might not be there for another five years, but I'd be glad to see you. I have about nine million closings, but I'll use one. There's an ancient story about creation that reminds me of this program and also reminds me of spirituality. It's quite simple. It's also quite profound, as most simple things are. I think it comes from the Hindu, I know it comes from the Hindu tradition. And what it says is that it's the, it started out with all of the, all of the gods up in the, the pantheon, or they weren't in Mount Olympus in, in Hindu scripture, I'm not sure where they were. But anyway, they were doing their thing, and, and they said, let's do, let's do creation. Okay. So, you know, they made the planets, and they made the stars, and they made the sun, they did everything. And they said, well, we, we've still got a lot of stuff left here. Let's make one other thing. Let's make, let's make a, let's make a person. Oh, they like that idea. And let's make, let's make people very, very special. And so what we'll do is we'll put some of our own divinity inside of them. And all the other gods agreed. They said, that's a great idea. Great. Let's do that. And so they did. They made people and they put divinity inside of them. And for a while it was all great because people recognized the divinity inside of themselves and they recognized the divinity in the other people around them. And in fact, they even invented a word that is still used as a greeting over in India. And the word is namaste. And the word means the divine in me honors the divine within you. And so everybody, when they would see one another, they would say that. They would say, the divine in me honors the divine within you. And they would smile and they would, they would hug and they would embrace. And if somebody happened to cut them off in traffic, they would say, ah, the divine within me honors the divine within you. And I guess you're in a hurry. All right? Or if somebody forgot to write a check in the grocery line, they would say, ah, the divine in me honors the divine within you. And I guess you forgot. I guess you had other more important things to do. And that's okay. And so they lived their lives like this. And then what happened was, like all of us do, well, no, I can't put all of you in my cat, like I do, I started to forget. And they started losing it. They started losing touch with this divinity within themselves. Until more and more and more, until things like fear and hatred and prejudice and war and just selfishness and all kinds of picayune character defects just kept cropping up until everybody was living in self-centered fear. 
And the gods looked down at this and, and, with, and they said, what are we going to do? And one of them said, well, let's take it away from them. They're abusing this gift. Let's take it away from them. And the oldest and the wisest of the gods says, no, we can't do that because it's already there. It's part of them. But what we can do so they don't abuse it anymore is we will hide it from them. And they said, oh, that's a great idea. Where are we going to hide it? They said, we can hide it on the highest mountain. Oh, no, they'll probably find it there. We'll hide it at the depths of the ocean. Oh, no, maybe they'll find it there too. Oh, oh, we'll, we'll hide it on the, on the other side of the moon. Oh, they'll probably get there too. And so all the other gods kind of threw up their hands and said, okay, where are we going to hide? And the oldest and the wisest of the gods looked over at them and said, I'll tell you where we will hide it. We will hide it in their hearts because that will be the last place they will look. I encourage you to make your heart the first place you look. And I really want to thank all of the, the committee, especially um, Brenda and Joe, who kind of got me sort of sight and word unseen or unheard uh, to be part of this wonderful, wonderful experience that I hope each one of us can bring in our hearts home with us. Know that the real world, the kingdom of heaven is within. It's not without and that each one of you has the most marvelous, marvelous gifts. Not only to give one another, but to be able to give yourself. And I more and more and more appreciate being here and knowing that the first word of the first step is, thank you, have a safe trip home.